West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin says he will not run for re-election. Losing his seat is a major blow to Democrats' efforts to retain control of the Senate. Coming up, that story and colleagues are fed up with Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville's blockade of military appointments and are coming up with creative ways to get around it. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Oregon Representative Earl Blumenauer about his retirement from Congress and how urban transportation policy has evolved throughout his almost three decades in Congress. And the strike by Hollywood actors may end after 118 days. We'll have what the tentative deal means for the entertainment industry. These stories, Wall Street numbers, and the forecast are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia says he will not seek re-election next year. NPR's Dave Mistich reports Manchin's looming departure from the Senate almost assuredly paves the way for a Republican to take the seat in 2024 and could help decide which party controls the U.S. Senate. Joe Manchin has been a stalwart in West Virginia politics for more than four decades, serving as a state lawmaker in both the House and Senate, as West Virginia Secretary of State and then Governor. Manchin first arrived in the U.S. Senate in 2010, winning a special election following the death of Senator Robert C. Byrd. While announcing he won't seek re-election, Manchin acknowledged his penchant for trying to work across the aisle in Washington. Many times this approach has landed me in hot water. But the fight to unite has been well worth it. Manchin says he'll travel the country gauging Americans' interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle. Meanwhile, Republican Governor Jim Justice and Congressman Alex Mooney are the front runners vying for the Senate seat in 2024. Dave Mistich, NPR News, Morgantown, West Virginia. In the Israel-Hamas war, the White House says Israel has agreed to humanitarian pauses in its strikes on Gaza four hours each day. This is a convoy with emergency medical supplies from the World Health Organization reached Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. NPR's Ari Daniel. The delivery was facilitated by the UN Relief and Works Agency, but the needs of Al-Shifa Hospital, the largest in Gaza, are enormous. Mohammed Matar is head of radiology there. Although he's been working elsewhere the last several days, he's in regular contact with his colleagues at Al-Shifa. I have been told by them that the hospital is very crowded. They cannot deal with the patients now because the number of staff is less than uh, it's supposed. He says some patients are waiting up to three days for surgery. The WHO is calling for fuel and supplies to be delivered to hospitals across Gaza and for those ferrying humanitarian aid to be able to do so safely and securely. Ari Daniel, NPR News. Home prices in the U.S. keep climbing despite the highest mortgage rates in decades. Here's NPR's Jennifer Ludden. The median single-family home price is now nearly $407,000, according to the National Association of Realtors. The typical monthly mortgage, just shy of $2,200, and that's a 19% jump from a year ago. Some of the biggest increases were in the Midwest, but California still tops the most expensive list. One factor is a lack of inventory. Homeowners who locked in lower rates don't want to sell now. Many younger people have been priced out, and some worry they'll never be able to buy. Meanwhile, the Realtors Association says the typical homeowner has gained $100,000 in net worth since 2019. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. The Dow's closed down 220 points. 
It's NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The state of Massachusetts says today that its emergency family shelter program is full. State data posted this afternoon shows 7,517 families are in the shelter system. The Healy administration says it can only handle 7,500. The wait list will start tomorrow for families who still need help. The governor's been working with lawmakers and asking the Biden administration for money and resources to meet the demand. The Massachusetts economy grew four times more than expected in the third quarter of the year. Economic experts at the UMass Donahue Institute expect the state's gross domestic product to rise less than 1% expected it to uh, between July and September. Instead, it grew nearly 4%. The Institute's Mark Melnick says the numbers set a record for the state. The unemployment rate is at a historic low at 2.6%. And the unemployed population plus those folks who are part-time but would like to work full-time is also approaching a historic low. Melnick expects the state's economy to cool this quarter and early next year because of lower household spending and a tight labor market. There's been a significant jump in the number of people signing up for state-backed health insurance. Open enrollment began last Wednesday. The head of the Massachusetts Health Connector says since then, more than 50,000 people have enrolled. That's 25 percent more than during the same period last year. It follows a year-long effort to redetermine whether nearly 2.5 million MassHealth members are still eligible. And Vice President Kamala Harris was in Boston today to headline a fundraiser downtown for President Biden's re-election and to meet with a labor group. WBUR Simone Rios was at the Pipefitters Local 537 in Dorchester. Harris's visit to Boston comes as the Biden administration is looking to highlight its support of unions. She talked about National Apprenticeship Week, while President Biden met with United Auto Workers in Illinois. Thank them for the eight-hour workday. Thank them for sick leave, for any paid family leave, for vacation time. (laughs) Brought to you by unions (laughs) for all workers, whether or not you're a member of a union or not. Harris later headed downtown to a Democratic fundraiser where pro-Palestinian protesters rallied outside. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Cloudy skies tonight, about 40 for a low. Clouds tomorrow in the low 50s. It's 4.07. WBUR supporters include American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced today that he will not seek another term. I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. Manchin, a Democrat, has represented the increasingly red state since 2010, though his centrist politics and tendency to buck his party on major legislation made him a thorn in the side of Democrats. Losing him in that seat is a major blow to their efforts to retain control of the chamber in next year's elections. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Hey there. Hey, Wada. So, Deirdre, what did Manchin have to say about why he does not want to run again next November for that Senate seat? 
He said he accomplished what he set out to do for his home state of West Virginia. Manchin's 76 years old. He served as governor of the state before he was elected to the Senate in 2010. As you noted, he's been part of a number of bipartisan deals, even though he did uh, sort of become the ire of the progressive left when he pushed back on President Biden's agenda. But he was critical to his climate and health care bill. The political reality for Manchin was that he was already facing long odds in a solidly red state to win as a Democrat on the ballot with President Joe Biden uh, on the ballot next year. And Biden is deeply unpopular in West Virginia. Manchin spent the last few months distancing himself from Biden. He even talked about repealing parts of the climate bill he actually co-authored. Let's talk about this in terms of control of the Senate. As we mentioned, this is a pretty big blow to Senate Democrats' efforts to retain control. How, How bad are things? I mean, it just got a whole lot harder for Democrats. They were already facing an uphill battle with a map in 2024 with 23 Democratic seats uh, on the map. And with such a narrow Senate majority, they can't really afford to lose anywhere. They're already defending seats in red states like Ohio with Sherrod Brown running for re-election and Montana with Senator Tester running for re-election. In West Virginia, Joe Manchin really was the one Democrats Democrats thought could keep his seat competitive. So it looks more likely Republicans will pick it up. The Senate GOP campaign chief Steve Daines quickly put out a statement after Manchin's announcement saying, quote, we like our odds in West Virginia. Okay, setting aside Senate control for a second here, what about Manchin himself? Any insight on what his future might hold? That's still a really big question. Manchin has been coy about his political future for months. He's been suggesting he might run as an independent for his seat. He made a reference to his plans to continue to stay in politics in his announcement today. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. Manchin's already traveled to a key primary state, New Hampshire. He was at an effort, uh, an event sponsored by a group called No Labels that's trying to get on the ballot in states to challenge both political parties in next year's election. Uh, Manchin sort of danced around whether he would run for president at that event in New Hampshire. Let's take a listen to what he said. We're here to make sure that the American people have an option. And the option is, can you move the political parties off their respective sides. They've gone too far right and too far left. Manson's argument is the current two parties can't be moved until they are actually threatened. Hmm, okay. So if, say, he were to run, do you have a sense of what a third party bid with a centrist like Joe Manchin, what would that look like? It's really unclear. His brand has always been arguing that there's a lot more to be accomplished in the political middle, which is hard to understand at a time where there's such division on both sides. Manchin made this point again in his announcement video today. These are not Republican or Democratic challenges. These are American challenges. They affect every one of us, and we need to face them together. But as Juana, as you know, it's such a divided country, it's really unclear whether there's any appetite for any moderate national candidate arguing about getting things done in the middle. So and Manchin's own party has moved significantly since the left. So he's really alienated many of the people he would need to vote for him if he did decide to make any sort of third party bid. NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thank you.
Okay, let's stay with developments in the Senate. One man there continues to hold up hundreds of military appointments. That Senator Tommy Tuberville, the Alabama Republican, has been blocking almost all nominations since February in protest over a Pentagon abortion policy. His colleagues are fed up, and they're starting to get creative about solutions. Here's NPR's Lauren Hodges. If you can't move him, it's time to find a way around him. That seems to be the thinking among many of Senator Tuberville's colleagues. Senate Rules Committee Chair Amy Klobuchar told NPR, Enough is enough. Senator Tuberville had not listened to those that are running our military. And he's not listened to his own Republican colleagues. Among those is Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska, who says he takes this personally as a former Marine. Sullivan told Fox News this week that Tuberville isn't just undermining military readiness, but also morale. If we start driving our best flag officers out of the military, this is going to be viewed as a national security suicide mission. There is generally resistance in the Senate to changing any rules. But Klobuchar says the vocal irritation from Republicans makes her confident they can pass a new temporary resolution, which is scheduled for a committee vote next week. In their current state, Senate rules allow Tuberville to hold up nominations all by himself. But the proposed change, which would need 60 votes to adopt, would work like this. Instead of voting on each military appointment one by one, most of them could pass through at once as a group. And it would only need a simple majority, like all other nominations. Klobuchar says Tuberville has blocked so many positions, more than 370 of them, the Senate doesn't have time to start from the beginning, even if someone got him to back down. There's a spending bill deadline to consider. Because if we voted on them individually, we would literally be going through the year and the government would shut down. Klobuchar says once the Tuberville issue is handled, she'd love to see a permanent rule change, making sure no one person has the power to do something like this again. Lauren Hodges, NPR News, The Capitol. Where should new housing be built as the climate gets hotter? That is a question Arizona has been grappling with. A two-decade drought is straining water supplies there, and there is a big demand for housing. The state has one of the strongest laws in the country to limit growth where water is scarce. But as Lauren Summer reports from NPR's Climate Desk, there's a loophole. If you want to build housing in Pinal County, Arizona, south of Phoenix, there's one topic that always comes up in public meetings. I think we all get these questions, but is there water for it? Lack of water assurances should be warning enough. We need to get the water. Yes, we need new sources of water. The area is a desert, after all, and a hotter climate is straining the water supply like never before. It's hard. Yeah. Water is hard. Craig McFarland is mayor of Casa Grande, a city in Pinal County. It's the fastest-growing county in Arizona. New jobs are opening up nearby at electric car and battery manufacturing plants. As industry is really rushing into the community, we have a huge need for housing. But where to put the housing? That's the issue. McFarland unrolls a map of the city, which looks like a patchwork quilt. Some land is white and some is blue. The blue parcels mean there's water. So these are all areas that single-family homes can be built in. But the white parcels are out of luck. To build a subdivision here, builders have to show the project has a water supply for 100 years. It's part of a consumer protection law that says that in Arizona, if you're a consumer, we're going to guarantee you have 100 years' worth of water. Four years ago, state water regulars found the demand had grown so much, water is going to run short. Most of it is pumped from underground aquifers. So they stopped issuing water guarantees for new subdivisions, which is what they need to get built. 
But McFarland isn't discouraged. Casa Grande will continue to grow. It's just we have to manage it. We have to be frugal with the water we have. And because building in town hasn't actually stopped. At a new development, construction workers are putting siding on single-story homes. It'll be more than 300 units. This is a great product to rent. Greg Hancock is president of Hancock Builders. He's been building homes in Arizona for more than four decades. Even with the water situation, Hancock didn't have to worry about a water supply for this project. We don't need an insured water supply because it's one lot. Although it is 331 units, it's one lot. These homes will be rented, not sold, to homeowners. And Arizona's water rules only apply to subdivisions where the land is broken up to build homes for sale. As a result, these build-to-rent projects have been booming in Arizona. We have finished 3,000. We have 3,000 more in the construction and 5,000 more in pre-development. And concerns are growing that that unaccounted growth could strain the water supply even more. It's really a pivotal moment for Arizona. Kathleen Ferris is a senior research fellow at the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. She helped write Arizona's groundwater rules four decades ago. Back then, building big rental projects wasn't really a thing. But now she says all of the state's water use needs to be examined. Arizona's other major water source, the Colorado River, is also shrinking as temperatures rise. Climate change and aridification have come on so much faster than most people thought. Earlier this year, state legislators tried to pass several bills that would have closed the loophole, requiring build-to-rent projects to have a water supply. Different interest groups, the realtors, the home builders, the Department of Water Resources, they all had different ways they wanted to structure the bills, and it just never came together. Policymakers may try again, and the governor has set up a task force on the issue. Ferris says the strength of Arizona's water law is that it links building decisions with water decisions. No other Western state requires cities to look 100 years into the future. Yes, there is still opportunity for growth, but there needs to be a understanding of the limits. That means cities are having to look at solutions like water recycling to boost their supplies in order to keep growing. The lesson of climate change, Ferris says, is that you always have to be planning ahead. Lauren Summer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered. After overcoming party infighting to finally elect a House Speaker, the honeymoon period for House Republicans has quickly faded. Sadly, today uh, there are too many personalities involved and, and, uh, and that's regretful. What's at stake if Republican lawmakers cannot unite? That's coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, and now in Beverly. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in greater Boston. Stocks headed downward today. The Dow lost more than six-tenths of a percent. Dow snapped uh, the uh, S&P, that is, snapped an eight-day winning streak. It sank eight-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq dropped nearly a full percent. Join WBUR for the new podcast that explores guns and the New England roots of the gun industry in America. Find The Gun Machine on your podcast app. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. 
working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. And Endless Energy, offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com. Clouds from today should stick around tonight and tomorrow. Lows about 40 overnight. Tomorrow should break into the low 50s, some strong winds around. Holiday weekend should be sunny, dry, and coolish in the mid to upper 40s both Saturday and Sunday. 45 now in Boston at 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere tomorrow. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. If you run into Representative Earl Blumenauer here in Washington, D.C., he might give you a pin, like the one he often wears on the lapel of his jacket adjacent to his bow tie. It's in the shape of a bicycle. And if you run into Congressman Blumenauer, he might actually just be on his bike. High among the causes he's championed over the course of 25-odd years in Congress is urban transportation, including public transit, street safety, and, yes, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure. The Democrat from Oregon has announced he'll be retiring from Congress after this current term. And so we wanted to talk to him about how this set of issues has evolved throughout his time in national office. Congressman Blumenauer joins us now in studio. Welcome. Thank you. So I want to start by just asking you a question. Since you first arrived in D.C. in 1996, have you ever owned a car here? No. (laughs) So follow up. Has it gotten easier or harder for you to get around town since then? It's been an area of great satisfaction for me. When I first came, maybe there'd be a random bike messenger. But now coming to your studios... There are bike lanes. One of the things I'm most proud of is the bike lanes down the middle of Pennsylvania Avenue. We have bike share. People understand the value of burning calories instead of fossil fuel. What do you attribute that change to? Why do you think people, some people at least, are so much more embraceive of other ways of getting around? Well, I think we've found in Congress that everybody's got a bike story. And the work that has been done on bike trails, bike safety, safe routes to school, strikes a chord. And it's accessible to people. It's affordable. And it's fun. When you bike to work, you don't have to worry about road rage. People that stop at a stop line next to you smile. And it is the most efficient form of urban transportation ever designed. I also know that there are a lot of people out there who are angry about it, who don't think that bikers belong on the roads. These are fights that many of us see spilling over in our community listservs or at our neighborhood association meetings. How do you convince motorists who 
don't really have an inclination, some of them, to care about or even care for cyclists or even pedestrians for that matter, that bicycle infrastructure, improving it, expanding it, is something that's worth caring about and investing in. Well, there's important public education to take place. I'm fond of pointing out that every bicycle beside you is not a car in front of you. For years, we've been in the thrall of the single occupant vehicle. We now know that that is not good for a city. It's part of the housing problem. Two billion parking spaces in this country is land that's not available for housing redevelopment. Most important, there's a public process that's necessary to be able to make sure that you engage people in the neighborhoods or people who are cranky. We have answers. Many people have concerns and questions. We can work that through. You are leaving Congress at a moment when urban transportation has really been reshaped by the pandemic. It's something I know well because I often take that mark train just down the street from Union Station to my home in Baltimore when I come to work. And I notice how many fewer riders there are on the train with me. And that's been the case everywhere. Public transit is way down, thanks in part to more people who have flexibility to be able to work from home. And public transit agencies, broadly speaking, many are bleeding money. What do you think needs to be done to keep the country's trains and buses and streetcars going strong, given those challenges? Well, part of it is what we've done with the Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure bill. We have unprecedented sums of money that are available. We're also targeting safety, which is important, whether it's transit or bike and pedestrian, giving people that sense that it's okay. We also have to contend with the needs for more downtown housing. And we've got office towers that are hollowing out. There are opportunities to convert many of these buildings to residential uses and build that density back up. Um, We'll get there, but I think it's important that we stay the course, build the infrastructure, and provide the housing opportunities in the core of the city. One thing I hear from friends who choose not to utilize public transit, whether it's here in Washington or elsewhere, is that they feel like it's not reliable. They feel like it's quicker to hop in their car to have control of their commutes. As someone who famously has opted out of having a car here in Washington, what do you say to those people? Well, we've had some real problems with reliability, particularly here in Washington, D.C. But part of what's going on now is in these increased investments. It helps stabilize. We've got workforce issues. It's it's not unique to transit, but it is something that does deserve attention. Part of what we need to do is level the playing field between people who use transit and people who drive cars. I was able to secure parity for people who commute to work via car and transit. We're working now to make it more flexible in terms of being able for people to take the cash equivalent instead of the free parking. There are things we can do to make it more attractive and more fair. I want to shift gears a little bit here and ask you about the record pedestrian deaths in the U.S. They were at a 40-year high last year. That's according to the Governor's Highway Safety Association. And just to be specific, almost 20 pedestrians killed each day by moving vehicles. What do you think can be done to reduce that number? Well, it needs to have a higher priority from your federal government, and it needs basically an all-hands-on-deck. We're seeing people running red lights, speeding. We've had horrific examples here in metropolitan Washington. There's an overall challenge these days, and part of it, I think, is the aftermath of the pandemic and people being cranky, stresses 
on law enforcement, where there's been less interest in enforcing the traffic safety because of concerns about unequal application. But we've seen carnage on the roadways, and they primarily are children, older people, people of color, in poor neighborhoods. It's grotesquely inequitable, and it is, in fact, an epidemic. When you look at the American landscape and cities and towns across this country, what gives you hope when you think about the future of transportation? What gives me hope is watching what's happened in city after city. Early in my career, I did work in auto-dominated communities like Houston and Phoenix, and I've watched transit and cycling be part of the landscape. I've watched the advocacy take place. It's been a long-term education process, a long-term process to invest in the infrastructure and having government get the signal straight. But I think we've made remarkable progress, and I think time is on our side. Congressman, you have been a persistent voice on these issues for as long as many of us can remember. When you leave Congress next year, what comes next for you? I'm not going to be on airplanes 14 hours a week. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be able to spend more time in my community and and in other communities working on things that I care about because I think there's a lot of work to be done. I enjoy working with communities and interest groups. I'm in no hurry to take a a specific path, but I'm not going to walk away from this stuff. It's too much fun and it's too important. Earl Blumenauer, Democrat of Oregon, he's been in the House of Representatives since 1996 and has announced that he will retire next year. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Checking sports at the Boston Garden tonight. The Bruins host the New York Islanders. New England Patriots are traveling to Germany today. The Pats will play the Indianapolis Colts in Frankfurt Sunday. Kickoff will be 9.30 a.m. our time. This will be the Patriots' first ever game in Germany and their fourth international game overall. Forecast after a gray, damp day today. We're in for a cloudy night tonight, about 40 for a low. Tomorrow, another cloudy day, but temperatures should barely top 50 degrees Should have some sunshine moving in for the Veterans Day holiday, about 48 tops on Saturday. Sunday sunny, temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Iowa is known as a mostly rural state with a population that is almost entirely white. But there are some pockets that buck this stereotype. One such place is Perry, Iowa, where the Latino community now represents over a third of the population. They're kind of accepting us because there's no other way. <laughs> How is the increased anti-immigrant rhetoric of Republicans affecting the community and its residents? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. As the war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas rages on, U.S. officials are vowing to defend their own forces and military bases in the region from violence. There have already been at least 40 attacks on U.S. forces since mid-October by Iranian proxy groups tied to Hamas. That prompted U.S. forces to fire back, hitting a weapons depot in eastern Syria.
White House National Security Spokesman John Kirby says the U.S. will defend itself. We're sending a strong signal to uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps and to the Supreme Leader in Tehran. We're not looking for a war with Iran, but we will do what we have to do to protect our troops and our forces. So these uh, proxy groups in the IRGC, they got a choice to make now. We struck again last night, and we'll certainly do that again if we feel like we need to. Kirby says Israel has agreed to put in place four-hour daily pauses to deliver humanitarian aid into Gaza as negotiations with Hamas continue over the release of more hostages. The Justice Department's inspector general says he's alarmed by conditions inside a federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. The inspector general's office conducted an unannounced inspection at the federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida in May and found a host of problems, including with the facility's food services. Here's Inspector General Michael Horowitz. Serving bread with mold on it in the kitchen facility, spoiled uh, food in the warehouses, food with bugs crawling in it, evidence of what appeared to be rodent droppings. The watchdog says in a new report that the Tallahassee Federal Prison also suffers from understaffing, and that the prison itself is in bad physical shape, with leaky roofs and windows and paint and plaster falling off the walls. All problems that are prevalent across the federal prison system. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, the Massachusetts family shelter system hit its capacity limit. Tomorrow, the state will begin turning away families and putting them on a wait list. State officials say they will receive shelter when a unit becomes vacant. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, this is a first in the system's 40-year history. The family shelter population has more than doubled over the past year, including many new arrivals from Haiti. Homeless advocates warn that making families wait for shelter will leave them without safe options. There is a waiting list, but there is no waiting place. Reverend Diefior Florissen is a leader in the Haitian community. I'm very worried, very concerned, very worried about those families. He would like to see military bases or other overflow sites for waitlisted families. State officials say families fleeing domestic violence and those with health and safety risks will be prioritized on the waitlist. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. Today, the MBTA announced its game plan to shut down stretches of subway lines over the next year to repair long-standing problems. That will let workers repair problems that are causing slow zones throughout the system. The zones are put in place when track conditions force trains to move more slowly than normal. T General Manager Phil Eng says the nearly 200 speed restrictions can be lifted by the end of next year if all goes as planned. We understand uh, those diversions will have impacts to those people that are relying on our system. Reggie Ramos with the nonprofit Transportation for Massachusetts says the team must also communicate how this plan could disrupt other work on the system. Another piece that we are looking forward to hearing is how this one-year plan could potentially be folded into existing projects or potentially impact other MBTA projects, especially those that pertain to safety. To help accommodate riders during the week, uh, during the work, that is, the T will provide shuttle buses. Riders will also be encouraged to use the commuter rail. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
Lots of clouds out there right now. A cloudy night ahead, dipping to about 40 degrees. For tomorrow, cloudy again. Windy, too. Temperatures in the low 50s. 45 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grant Chester's Morvan Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. House Republicans seem to be having a moment of togetherness last month after they overcame weeks of party infighting and finally elected a speaker. But that solidarity quickly faded as one wing of congressional Republicans broke out into public arguments with each other. The animosity threatens to prevent House Speaker Mike Johnson from delivering on his promise to unite them and get Congress back to work. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. A little more than two weeks ago, House Republicans were electrified, chanting the name of Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson to lead them as Speaker. Johnson said it marked a new chapter. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority, is united. But it only took a couple of days to return to the infighting that has consumed this GOP conference. Let me just tell you, if Matt Gates's lips are moving, it's only lies that's coming out of it. There might not be another member of Congress who lives a lie every day more than Jason Smith. She can play the game once or whatever. I mean, He attacked me first, so... I called him Colonel Sanders. That's House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith, Florida Congressman Matt Gates, Texas Congressman Chip Roy, and Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. After Smith called Gates a liar on a local Missouri radio show, Gates fired back from his podcast. More recently, Greene attacked Roy and other Republicans on social media who voted against one of her legislative resolutions. Green argues the intraparty fights are the nature of the congressional beast. Politics is definitely a place where we argue ideas and ways to accomplish things, and uh, it's definitely on display all the time here. But a lot of these arguments are not about ideas or policies. They're very personal. In fact, they've gotten in the way of Republicans' ability to unify on big things like avoiding a government shutdown next week, not to mention more controversial things like aid for Israel and Ukraine. Arkansas Republican Steve Womack says this isn't the olden days when members of Congress could have heated fights during the day, followed by joint dinners that night. You know, I long for those days. That's the way it was designed and that's the way it ought to function. But sadly today, uh, there are too many personalities involved and that's regretful. It gets in the way of us getting our work done and our work is pretty important. And Womack knows what it's like to get personal. His family was targeted recently after Womack joked on social media about a failed House floor vote to expel New York Congressman George Santos. Santos, who is facing a long list of criminal probes, attacked Womack's son, who has faced a struggle with drug addiction. You know, those are, you know, childish acts, really, when you, when you resort to going on social media and, uh, and you know, crossing red lines for a lot of members, you know, involving their families. Santos later apologized, 
telling NPR it was the right thing to do, but he declined to comment further. Republicans say a number of factors are fueling the clashes, including the recent speaker fight. Here's Missouri freshman Mark Alford. I think the three weeks of not having a rudder on our ship made everyone realize we need to look within ourselves, find what we need to improve upon and how we can help to move forward as a conference. Many members said the way to do that is to start to forgive. Take Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith. He blamed Gates for much of the chaos last month in an interview on Missouri's local Mark Cox show. Gates returned fire on his own podcast with a vague allegation that Smith is living a lie. Smith later said he was capable of forgiveness. Gates says a lot of things, a lot of members says a lot of things. People's personalities get upset. I forgive people. Many Republicans agreed that the best way to move forward is to pass legislation together. Chip Roy of Texas says he's hopeful Johnson can help set that new tone. It's like a fresh start, right? There's not, I don't, need, I don't mean this pejoratively, but he doesn't come with baggage. The ongoing skirmishes will require a lot of forgiveness to move the conference forward, but it's not clear it can go far enough to repair the lingering damage from recent weeks. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. As word spread yesterday that the strike by Hollywood actors would end after 118 days, performers expressed relief and celebration across social media and in public. Here's actor Jeremy Allen White finding out that the strike ended while doing a red carpet interview with Access Hollywood for his new film, The Iron Claw. Very, very happy the strike is over just now. It's crazy. Here we are. I'm ready. The new deal negotiated by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers and SAG-AFTRA, the union representing Hollywood actors, stunt performers, voiceover actors, and dancers, must still be ratified by members of the union. And we should note that NPR news staffers are also members of SAG-AFTRA, but we broadcast journalists are under a different contract, and we were not part of the strike. Here to answer questions around what is hopefully a new deal is Eric Daggins, NPR's TV critic and media analyst. Hey there. Hi. So Eric, what can you tell us about this new agreement? Does Hollywood think it was worth this long work stoppage? Well, the leadership of the Actors Union and members of the negotiating committee seem really pleased with what they worked out. And there's a general sense that the union succeeded by holding out until it could get a deal addressing many of the concerns of its members. The union has said the new contract is valued at more than a billion dollars. The Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, which represented Hollywood Studios, has said it provided the largest increase in minimum wages for actors in 40 years along with new payments for streaming and rules about how they use artificial intelligence. I think we're going to learn more about this once the SAG-AFTRA board reviews it, reportedly tomorrow, and then union members still need to ratify it. So when will fans start to see this new deal in action? Well, the first thing you're going to see is a lot of your favorite celebrities all over media, talk shows especially, promoting projects that are out now or coming out now, which they couldn't do while on strike. Actors can go back to film festivals like Sundance. Oscars and the Emmys and award shows will firm up their plans. All of that is going to kick in right away. One of the big questions I have, I mean, it's about the work itself. How will these film studios, TV, streaming, how are they going to get things going again after all this time? 
Well, it's not totally clear yet, but there's a hope that since the Writers Guild of America strike ended in late September after 148 days, they've had time to plan how they're going to rev up production. There's also hope that the broadcast TV series can have a shortened series of maybe 13 episodes of new content uh, for popular shows this year. Uh, movies and streaming shows will take a little longer to get going, but I wonder if the public's even going to notice because the flood of new shows didn't slow that much during the strikes. Hopefully we'll see the quality of shows go up a bit as old favorites come back. Yeah. I mean, last thing, is there any hidden fallout to these strikes that perhaps we're only going to start to understand as the dust settles and people are getting back to work? Well, I worry about the brain drain. I mean, these strikes didn't just stop actors and writers from working. A lot of people had to stop working, and some of them probably couldn't afford to not get paychecks for as long as these strikes lasted. What TV shows got canceled, and how will that affect the entertainment landscape? And it seems like creators and performers from marginalized groups were just starting to get a lot of projects, significant footholds in the industry. Are we going to still see that level of diversity when everything starts up again? Lots to look for. NPR's Eric Deggins, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. Even the most devoted news hounds need a break away occasionally, so NPR is taking time to celebrate the things we are really into, beyond the news. Here's Suzanne Nguyen, who finds joy in the kitchen and sharing what she's learned there. I love to eat, but feeding others, that's my love language. When I graduated from college and moved to D.C. in 2017, I left all of my friends behind. Plying new acquaintances with lavish, home-cooked meals was my best attempt at making new ones. I don't want to brag, but my food is pretty good. Soon enough, everyone was asking me for the recipes. So in 2019, I launched Boon Ba Bay, my Vietnamese cooking blog. Bring out these grilled scallion oil mussels the next time you want to impress some guests. I'm going to introduce you to a highly underrated Vietnamese noodle soup. Let's make an unctuous Vietnamese pork belly dish together. In hindsight, starting a food blog was probably my destiny. I spent most of my childhood in the kitchen with my mom, and as a toddler, I'd sit and watch her cook. My sous chef duty started with just passing her the ingredients. Soon, I was measuring, steaming, and stir-frying my way toward mastery. But before I could learn all of my mom's kitchen secrets, I left for college. I studied abroad in Paris my sophomore year, and it was there that I felt truly alone for the first time in my life. There were no roommates, no dorms, no dining halls. I was on my own, and I was desperately homesick. So I started calling my mom and asking for the recipes for my favorite dishes. It turns out that she didn't have many recipes. She couldn't give me a single measurement for any dish. That just wasn't the way she learned how to cook. She learned from her mom, my grandma, who passed her knowledge on orally. So now it was my turn. Over long phone calls, my mom taught me how to cook intuitively by tasting, smelling, and feeling my foods. Season the pork with salt, pepper, fish sauce, spin shallot, and garlic, and mix everything well before setting it aside for at least 30 minutes. Writing for Boon Ba Bay was initially a space for me to document everything I learned. I wasn't confident I would remember enough to teach my kids to cook these dishes one day. I wanted to preserve in writing dishes like my mom's bung ba hue, which is a spicy beef noodle soup that inspired the blog's name, or my dad's tit bam soka jua, a versatile pork-based tomato sauce that I go to every time I'm feeling lazy. 
I especially wanted to make sure that these dishes could be created as authentically as possible. These days, I experiment more. I'm not as strict with myself about preserving and recreating dishes exactly as I remember eating them. I use seasonal ingredients and substitute things when I can't find them. I've even uploaded recipes I've developed entirely on my own. My blog has given me a space to write about what I love on days when the news feels too depressing. It's connected me to countless new internet friends, and most importantly, it's taught me that celebrating my Vietnamese American heritage doesn't have to be about perfectly replicating traditions. It's about mixing what I've been taught with my own life experience and cooking up something entirely new. The result is a fatty, rich, and tender pork belly that's incredibly happy dance-inducing. Okay, see you next time. That was NPR's Suzanne Nguyen. In addition to her blog, Boomba Bay, she also writes the Up First newsletter. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up in about 20 minutes, around one in every five people killed by police in the U.S. were having a mental health crisis at the time. In 20 minutes, how one police department is enlisting social workers to help deal with people in crisis. Comedian Bethany Van Delft hosts the Moth Story Slam on Tuesday, November 14th at City Space. Tell us a story based on the theme Give and Take or just come and enjoy the show. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara, serving modern Latin American fare at the Melrose Cafe, and now a new location with table service open in Beverly. Drop-off lunch catering available. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, showcasing the all-new 2024 Subaru Outback. Available now. CitysideSubaru.com. Had uh, lots of clouds around today, some showers as well overnight tonight. May have a few showers, mostly dry, though. A lot of clouds around, about 40 degrees for a low tonight. Then for tomorrow, should break the low 50s, some strong winds, plenty of clouds again. The holiday weekend should be sunny, dry, and coolish temperatures in the mid to upper 40s, both Saturday and Sunday. 45 now in Boston at 449. I'm Scott Tong. NPR's Steve Inskeep has been on the ground reporting from the Israel-Hamas conflict. There's some of these stone foundations hundreds of years old. This is like five, six hundred years old, most of it, but it's based on much older places. Steve Inskeep joins us next time in Here and Now. Listen again tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The alarming rise of anti-Semitism on college campuses, as President Biden has called it, is showing no signs of abating. The spike that started after the October 7th massacre by Hamas in Israel is leaving many Jewish students feeling unsafe. As NPR's Tovia Smith reports, many pro-Palestinian students say they're also being targeted and doxxed, leaving colleges caught in the middle. 
It didn't take long for the demonstrations that began after October 7th as vigils to devolve into vitriol and violence. Pro-Palestinian protesters banged on doors and windows of the campus library at the Cooper Union in New York, where Jewish students were holed up inside. A Cornell student was arrested for allegedly threatening to slit Jews' throats. At Drexel University, a Jewish student's dorm room door was set on fire. And at Tulane University in New Orleans, protesters assaulted a Jewish student breaking his nose. And, you know, there's blood pouring down my nose. It's like, you know, all over the sidewalk. Freshman Dylan Mann is still recuperating physically and mentally. It was scary. I think what we're seeing right now is a lot of shouting at each other. And at the end of the day, it's not going to change anyone's mind. It's just going to add fuel to the fire. Things have intensified in ways we have never seen before. Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League says students are afraid and angry that many universities were slow not only to condemn the Hamas attacks of October 7th, but also to address students' security concerns. The universities generally are failing the test. I would give the vast majority of university administrators an F. Muslim, Palestinian, and Arab students are also reporting a spike in hate-based incidents, from countless cases of doxing and losing jobs, to the Stanford student injured in a hit-and-run that's now being investigated as a hate crime. But Greenblatt says schools have long been more lax on anti-Semitism than other kinds of hate, like anti-gay or anti-black. Universities for far too long have been permissive about actions they would never countenance directed at any other community. And it creates the conditions in which crazy people feel impelled to take action. And I worry that it could get worse. Some Jewish students are withdrawing applications from certain schools, and many donors, Jewish and non, are pulling their giving, unless universities do more to condemn and curb anti-Semitism. Schools across the nation have been beefing up security. At the University of Pennsylvania, for example, where there's been many incidents of anti-Semitic harassment, vandalism, and threatening emails that are now being investigated by the FBI, the university concedes it, quote, has work to do to root out what it calls the evil of anti-Semitism. Even on relatively calm campuses, Jewish students say they're rattled by acts like destroying pictures of Israeli hostages. So seeing those posters ripped down on my walk to class can just really clog my brain for the day. University of Michigan student Emma Jonas says what may be most upsetting is seeing so many colleges failing to make this a teachable moment. Students are uninformed, Jonas says, as she saw recently at a campus demonstration where pictures of the youngest hostages were taped to baby strollers. And then this girl came over and like looked in the stroller and was like, oh my god, like what is this? Um, like, this has been going on for three weeks, and then just, like, for someone's first encounter with it to be today, like, I was totally shocked. I do believe this is very much driven by ignorance. Maria Ayub, a Palestinian student at the University of Maryland College Park, was among many who got mixed up with a group of pro-Israel students last week. We heard some Palestinians, like, yelling at them, telling them to, like, kill themselves and just to, like, get out like you're not welcome all these things but what could have gone really bad actually went the other way and we were like that's not okay you can't say that to anybody so we did apologize on that person's behalf two hours later the pro-palestinian and pro-israel students were still talking 
By the end, Ayub and a Jewish student, Karen Binyamin, even shared a laugh. She said that me and her looked very similar. We could practically be sisters in terms of looks. She, you know, looked a lot like me. Like, we have the same eyes and hair. And we, like, stood next to each other. We're like, look, like, oh, isn't this so funny? There was a chuckle. Yes, it definitely made us laugh. <laughs> Before leaving, the two shook hands and traded phone numbers. But those kinds of encounters are more the exception than the rule. When University of Texas Arlington professor Morgan Marietta organized a Q&A for students with the school's resident Mideast expert, pro-Palestinian students immediately balked, insisting the single expert would be one-sided and unfair. They protested outside and inside, Marietta says, swearing and shouting questions like, what's the difference between Zionists and Nazis? Things only went down from there. There was a student shouting, all of you, Israel, the United States. How she thought that would persuade anyone that she was taking a reasonable position is beyond me. To Marietta, it's a sign of how much students have to learn about how to have a robust but respectful and intellectually honest academic debate. He says that should be a mandatory part of freshman orientation. But for his efforts, Marietta ended up rebuked by the university, and he resigned his job as department chair. Indeed, to many, it is still too soon for calm conversation. This Arab-American student leader at the University of Maryland asked that his name not be used, noting the many pro-Palestinian students who are getting harassed and doxxed. I don't want to have to face backlash, especially when it's often blatant smearing and libel because of employers not wanting to hire someone who is allegedly anti-Semitic or allegedly a terrorist sympathizer. He accuses universities of leaning too pro-Israel and not doing enough to prevent harassment of pro-Palestinian students, who he says are also being targeted. Patty Perillo, University of Maryland VP of Student Affairs, says the blowback is inevitable from one side, the other, or both. It's tough. There's no doubt about it. You can get slammed either way. Some schools are taking a cue from the Calvin Report, a 50-year-old University of Chicago paper that implores universities to simply stay neutral on political and social issues. Schools should be the home and sponsor of critics, the case goes, not critics themselves. But Perillo calls that untenable. You can't stand in neutrality. We're an institution that says we are deeply invested in an inclusive community. You can't say that and then stand on the sidelines. The Muslim chaplain at Rutgers University, Kaiser Uslam, agrees. And when emotions are high, he says, it's actually a more teachable moment. Meaning in that moment in which we feel very sensitive and raw, oftentimes that's where if there was some inert Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, those come to the surface. And that's a great opportune moment to correct it rather than ignore it or excuse it. Meantime, the U.S. Department of Education is also warning college administrators not to ignore it. In a letter to schools this week, the Biden administration says schools must unequivocally condemn and take aggressive action to address anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents on campus. If they don't, officials warn, they could lose federal funding. Tovia Smith, NPR News. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. 
Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR, 43 degrees now in the Boston area. At the Garden tonight, the Bruins host the New York Islanders. New England Patriots are traveling to Germany today. The Pats will play the Indianapolis Colts in Frankfurt Sunday. Kickoff is at 9.30 a.m. This will be the Patriots' first ever game in Germany and their fourth international game overall. This is WBUR. The time is 4.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israel says it will implement a daily four-hour pause in fighting to allow for aid to enter Gaza and for work to get hostages released by Hamas. Coming up, how the war between Israel and Hamas is shaking up the Middle East and creating a threat that the violence could spread. This is All Things Considered. Also ahead, about 20% of people killed by police since 2015 were in the midst of a mental health crisis at the time. Now some cities are pairing police officers with mental health professionals when they head out to respond to crisis calls. Working with people that are experts in the, the, the behavioral health, I was like, it should have been done a long time ago. How Philadelphia's plan is working coming up. And sag after President Fran Drescher tells us about the tentative deal struck between the Actors Union and Hollywood Studios. It's 5.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has announced he will not run for re-election in 2024. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports his decision means Democrats face an uphill climb to keep their narrow majority next year's election. Democrats already faced a tough map in 2024 to keep control of the Senate. They have 23 seats on the ballot, and the most contested ones are in red states like Ohio, Montana, and West Virginia. Manchin says he accomplished what he set out to do for his home state, but he added he's not done with politics. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. Manchin has previously suggested he might be open to a third-party bid to run for president. Several Republicans were already running against Manchin, including Governor Jim Justice and Congressman Alex Mooney. The head of the Senate GOP's campaign committee, Steve Daines, released a statement saying, quote, we like our odds in West Virginia. 
Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. President Biden is again touting the recent agreement reached between the UAW and the big three automakers, calling the deal historic. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Biden is visiting union workers in suburban Chicago today after nearly 45-day strike. Sporting a red UAW union shirt, President Biden praised workers for the gains they made during negotiations. I've worn this shirt a lot, man. You have no idea. I've been involved with the UAW longer than you were alive, man. <laughs> Look, that day in Michigan, I said the auto strike was about a simple proposition. You guys sacrificed to save the automobile industry. Biden says he's also backing efforts to unionize car makers Tesla and Toyota. The UAW has repeatedly tried to organize non-union factories, most of them built by Asian and European automakers in states where labor laws make it optional for workers to pay union dues. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Mortgage rates have come down a bit after hitting their highest levels in more than two decades. NPR Scott Host reports the average rate on a 30-year loan is now 7.5%. Freddie Mac says the average mortgage rate has fallen by more than a quarter percentage point in the last week. That's the sharpest decline in a year. Mortgage rates generally track the yield on 10-year treasuries, which have also come down. Two weeks ago, the average cost of a 30-year home loan was closing in on 8%. While mortgage rates have eased a bit, they're still higher than they were a year ago and much higher than they were two years ago, when a loan could be had for less than 3%. The elevated mortgage rates have priced many would-be homebuyers out of the market and discouraged people who already own homes from selling and having to give up their low-cost loans. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Dow fell 220 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There is no more room in the state's shelter system for families who have nowhere to live. The Healy administration says the cap of 7,500 households was hit today. Tomorrow, families will have to get on a wait list for emergency shelter. The state's emergency assistance general, Scott Rice, says the state is working with community groups to provide people with basic necessities and overnight sleeping accommodations. Families with health and safety needs will be prioritized for housing. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng announced this morning that the T plans to remove all 191 slow zones on the subway system by the end of next year. Eng says the goal is to give riders time back in their day and provide timely, reliable, consistent service. This not only is serving the public that, that is using our system today, but to be able to bring people back to the system knowing that they can rely on the T to get them from where they need to be uh, when they need to be there and they can do it safely. Eng says regular service will be disrupted while repairs are being made. Altogether, the plan involves 19 days of diversions before the end of this year and 188 days in 2024. The T has a full calendar of the planned disruptions on its website. Governor Moore Healy says she will no longer announce in advance when she plans to travel out of state. That's according to a disclosure Healy filed with the State Ethics Commission. A Healy spokesperson cites security concerns for the policy change and provided no further specifics. Previous governors would release their out-of-state travel plans ahead of time. There will be no outpatient services or clinics at VA facilities tomorrow when the Veterans Day holiday is marked. VA Boston spokesman Winfield Danielson says there will be events for patients at all of the hospitals. At our West Roxbury facility, which is where our inpatients are, 
um, we're going to be having a cookout for our veterans and employees that are here. Former Red Sox players will visit the VA hospital in Brockton. In the forecast, 44 degrees now in the Boston area. Clouds galore this evening, overnight tonight and tomorrow, falling a few degrees to about 40 tonight. Tomorrow could make it to the low 50s, winds picking up. Veterans Day Saturday should be sunny, close to 50. Sunday sunny and a little bit cooler. It's 507. WBUR supporters include Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, the longest strike in history by actors against film and TV studios has finally ended. As of this morning, actors are free to work again now that their union, SAG-AFTRA, has a tentative deal in hand. It still needs to be ratified, but it includes pay bumps, protections against artificial intelligence, and streaming bonuses. SAG-AFTRA president Fran Drescher is on the line with us now to talk more about it. But before we jump in, I just want to say so far studio heads have not responded to NPR's request for interviews, though the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers has called the tentative agreement, quote, a new paradigm and said it looks forward to the industry resuming the work of telling great stories. Fran Drescher, welcome back to All Things Considered. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you. I should note first that NPR News staffers are also members of SAG-AFTRA, but we are under a different contract. We were not on strike. We've been working this whole time. Now you guys get to work as well. So tell me, Fran, after almost four months of actors striking, what was the breakthrough that led to this deal, you think? Well, we were making strides throughout the time that we were on strike, except of course from when the AMPTP decided they were either going to walk out or they themselves were deliberating taking time before they came back with a counter proposal uh, so you know the time was usually productive <laughs> and once we really got to a place where not only did they really fully grasp the idea that this is a new dawn, that this is new leadership, that this is a historic time, and this recalls for a seminal negotiation, then whatever it was that we were talking about, whatever it was we felt that we needed, they decided to put their thinking caps on and grouped together to come up with their own solution version. Let me talk about that new dawn, okay. as you refer. Do you think the protections for artificial intelligence in this contract are broad enough to keep up with this quickly evolving technology? Or do you think, Fran, you're going to have to renegotiate this AI issue all over again in three years when this contract is up? Well, I think that it's going to be an ongoing discussion and potentially an ongoing battle because in the world of AI, three months is equivalent to a year. So we got whatever we thought we could possibly get to protect our members for the duration of this 
uh, contract, but we also requested that we all meet together to dis take the pulse of where technology is uh, biannually, or um, one is it uh, twice a year. <laughs> <laughs> I think biannually. The understanding is that you would years. revisit the AI, AI issue. We would be talking about it because we're going to have to come together on the same side for federal regulation and also to protect both of us from piracy. So, you know, there's a lot there that we have to really start working together on. Right. And now there's language in the contract to protect my members. And in three years, it may be a whole different situation with new problems that need to be unpacked sure. and discussed and argued and negotiated. And I think it's going to be this way for a very long time. Okay. And that's okay. Let's talk about the streaming participation bonus. I mean, I know that you had to push really hard to get the AMPTP to agree to this bonus, which basically means that actors will now get paid more if a show that's on a streaming platform is a hit. But there are a lot of shows on streaming platforms that aren't hits, right? Like Bloomberg found that fewer than 5% of original programs on Netflix last year would be considered popular enough to result in performance bonuses. So what do you make of that? Well, actually, the uh, mechanism by which we determine uh, the amount of money put into the fund is determined by the shows that receive 20% of the viewers, which is basically a thimble size. Right. You're but saying that, that if a particular and, show gets 20% of the platform subscribers to be an audience, that's considered a hit. And then a fund gets some of the bonus, if you will. Yeah. Then the bonus money will go into the fund based off of that mechanism. And then part of the bonus money will go to the performers that are actually on those shows because those shows would, you know, be definitely in syndication were they on linear television. Right, but a lot so of shows aren't hits. Get, so do you think that your union members are really going to get much out of this provision about performance bonuses? Well, they're going to get part of that money too. And that's why we needed the fund so that we can disperse it over a wider net. Now, in the first contract that we actually carved this inroad, um, it may not be as much as we want it to be, uh, but it's there. So we're all, all right. what I had to wrap my mind around, because at first I felt like, oh, Oof. I'm so it's sorry, as Fran. As... We're almost out of time. So I'm going to have oh. to say goodbye to you now. That is Fran Drescher, president of SAG-AFTRA. Thank you so much for joining us again. Okay. You're welcome. Thank you. About one in five people killed by police since 2015 was experiencing a mental health crisis. Cities are struggling to change their emergency re response and crisis care systems to prevent this. A big question they're grappling with. 
What role should police play? In Philadelphia, a new program pairs police officers with social workers to respond to calls about people who are in crisis. It is among the latest major cities to try this approach. WHYY's Nicole Leonard has this report. The first call from the 911 dispatch center comes in over the radio just after 8 in the morning. A woman is looking for help with her adult daughter, who has become combative after drinking alcohol. So this job says female complaint in reference to dispute with daughter suffers from bipolar infant on location. Philadelphia police officers Kenneth Harper and Jennifer Torres are in their patrol car trying to get more details from dispatch. In the back seat, Christian Gardner is listening. She's not police, she's a social worker and clinician. Do we have an age for the daughter? No. Is that helpful for you to know? Yeah, I mean, if she's a kid, there are different resources that we would offer versus if she was an adult. The team arrives at a row house in North Philadelphia. They're part of the city's new co-responder program that sends police officers and mental health professionals out on calls together. They head inside to de-escalate the situation and offer support to both mom and daughter before returning to the car 40 minutes later. Officer Torres gives an update. In regards to her mental health, she's taking care of herself. She's taking her medication and she's going to therapy, so we don't need to like help her too much on that aspect. She's actually sleeping right now, so she's, I'll give her my car and she'll call us whenever she wake up. The team's ultimate goal is to help someone with their immediate behavioral health needs and avoid an arrest or use of force. Philadelphia's program has answered more than 600 calls since last December. The team has made only one arrest so far. Social worker Christian Gardner says that might surprise some people. Because, you know, when you see the police, what do you assume? Somebody's going to jail. But that's what this team is trying to prevent. Some community members think police should not be involved in this work at all. But Gardner feels she can make a difference as a clinician working alongside police because her presence can lead to a better outcome. She says it's taken time for some in law enforcement to recognize the skills and expertise she brings to crisis situations. I'm coming from a place of education, so they're moving from a place of safety and self-preservation and, you know, keeping everybody safe. It's, it just looks very different. But her partner on the call, Officer Harper, is sold. Working with people that are experts in the, the, the behavioral health, I was like, you know, this is, it should have been done a long time ago. Philadelphia consulted with cities like Los Angeles, Houston, and Denver, which operate their own co-response teams. Chris Richardson helped found Denver's co-response program in 2016. This is something that should be in every single community. Richardson says these programs also help cities figure out when law enforcement should be involved in crisis response and when they shouldn't. The goal being, how do we take police out of things that don't need to be policing? Like we're literally listening to the radio going, police are sitting next to us saying, I don't want to go to that. Why do I have to go to that? And we're like, yeah, why do you have to go to that? Richardson says that led to Denver going a step further, putting dispatch radios into the hands of crisis response teams staffed entirely by counselors and paramedics, no police at all. Those teams have answered more than 8,000 emergency calls in three years. 
Richardson says cities launching these programs will have to deal with certain obstacles, like finding the money to hire mental health staffers and figuring out how to make these teams available 24-7. Each community has to tailor it to what works best for them. But he says the investments are worth it because they can help drive down arrests and keep vulnerable people safe. For NPR News, I'm Nicole Leonard in Philadelphia. This story is from NPR's partnership with WHYY and KFF Health News. It's NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stocks headed downward today. The Dow lost more than six-tenths of a percent. The Dow snapped an eight-day winning streak. It sank eight-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq dropped nearly a full percent. Details coming up in business news starting at 6.30. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. An investing app must pay a half million dollars in fines levied by the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office. The state says the company Webull did not adequately handle customer complaints or compliance issues. The Secretary of State's office says since its launch in 2018, the company has at times employed just one person dedicated to compliance issues. Webull oversees some six million investor accounts through its app, and more than 100,000 are in Massachusetts. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Babson College, where an MBA or specialized master's equips you with the skills to take action and lead with confidence. Gain the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset at Babson, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report and 10th best college in America by The Wall Street Journal. Babson.edu slash gradprograms. 42 degrees in the Boston area. Clouds from today should stick around overnight tonight and come back tomorrow. Lows about 40 tonight. Tomorrow should break into the low 50s. Some gusty winds around. Then for the holiday weekend, sunny, dry, and on the cooler side in the mid to upper 40s both Saturday and Sunday. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station, And from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere tomorrow. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California, a state that, well, officially is no longer experiencing drought. At least that's the determination of the U.S. Drought Monitor after a year of record-breaking storms here in California. But, you know, this isn't quite cause for celebration. Groundwater reserves, one of the state's most important sources of water, have been overdrawn for decades. And restoring those reserves is not a simple task. The state has struggled to curb their depletion. So what does this past year of precipitation mean for this state's water woes? Jeffrey Mount is a senior fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California's Water Policy Center and joins us now. Welcome. Hey, happy to be here. Well, I mainly want to know, Jeff, 
like, how meaningful is this so-called drought-free status in California? Because, yeah, the drought monitor's report sounds like great news, but how long is this status going to last, do you think? We don't know what this winter is going to bring us. We're hearing a lot about El Nino, but, you know, it's a 50-50 chance. It's the best way to describe it, that we're really going to have a wet year. The, the predictive ability of El Nino has disappeared 20-some years ago. So uh, it, it don't put too much stake in that. Uh, and, and so it could be wet, could be dry, and that's the way we think about it. And if it's dry, we'll just go back to extreme drought? We did that. In 2019, we had a very wet year. And in, by 2020, we were in a drought emergency. So things change very quickly here in California. And I think too many Californians forget that. I just want you to tell us more about the U.S. Drought Monitor. Like, how exactly does it judge whether an area is experiencing drought conditions? You know, I, I like to call it a map of art. Uh, and that is what it looks at is precipitation, soil moisture, looks a little bit at how much is in reserve and in, in reservoirs. And then there is a person who actually draws the map based on professional judgment. So it's not like a computer prints these maps out. Mm. But this is the thing that I think people need to remember about that drought map. It's really telling you about conditions at an individual place and its conditions really at the surface. And as your introduction alluded to, in California, groundwater is extremely important. And we have been mismanaging groundwater for 100 years. And so we have groundwater scarcity even in a year like this. We're seeing wells go dry even in a wet year like this. So uh, it doesn't capture well the fact that we rely so heavily on groundwater. And about 85 percent of Californians, I hear, rely on groundwater for at least some of their water supply, right? We're talking a huge proportion of the state. Those reserves have been massively overdrawn for years. How much was the last year of rain and snow able to restore that? And does the drought monitor take that into account? No, it does not. It can't. The drought monitor really tells you about conditions in the here and the now at the surface. It doesn't get groundwater. Yet groundwater is absolutely important for managing water scarcity in California. And and I have to tell you, you know, everybody was really excited. We got a lot of water back in the ground this year. There was, I mean, first of all, there was tremendous amounts of flooding, but we got yeah. we really did a great job of putting water back in the ground. It does not make up for the previous three dry years. So we're still in a net deficit of water it, it's, when you look over the last four years because we had such a severe drought. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one good year doesn't solve the problem. It takes two things, a lot of good years and then really good groundwater management. And we've got neither of those right now. Okay, so what I'm hearing from you is the bottom line is Californians stay paranoid, keep conserving water, because even though we're drought-free right now, we could be seeing drought very soon again. So I guess I'm asking, what should listeners even do with this information that right now the U.S. drought monitor says we're drought-free? Just... <laughs> Don't pay attention to that? <laughs> well, no, pay attention. We had a very good year. I mean, that's we should celebrate that. But the fact is, next year, we may not have a very good year. And we ha we cannot become complacent. It's that simple. We have to continue to conserve water and worry about it every year. We have to put away as much as we can during a wet year, and we got to conserve what we can during a dry year. And it will always be that way. That is Jeffrey Mount, Senior Fellow at the Public Policy Institute of California. Thank you so much. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks. A federal civil rights trial is underway in Louisville, Kentucky, for former police officer Brett Hankison. He's one of the officers who was involved in the middle-of-the-night raid that killed Breonna Taylor in 2020. Roberto Roldan with Louisville Public Media is following the trial from the courtroom, and he's with us now. Hi there. 
Hi, thanks for having me. So this is the second time that Brett Hankison is on trial for his role in the raid that led to Breonna Taylor's death. Is that right? Yeah. So Hankison was one of three of the officers who were on the scene who actually fired their guns that night. The others were never charged with anything. Hankison's trial in state court last year was for felony wanton endangerment, which is acting with reckless disregard for human life. But those charges were for endangering Taylor's neighbor, not her, and a jury ultimately acquitted him. In this federal trial, Hankison is facing two civil rights charges, one where Taylor is the listed victim. And that's important because it's the first time that any of the officers involved in the raid are actually facing charges for something that happened to Taylor. But still, no one has ever been charged with with her killing. Wow. This trial is also about using excessive force. What arguments have you been hearing about that in the courtroom? We're hearing a lot of the same arguments that we heard during the state trial. Um, Federal prosecutors say Hankison fired blindly through Taylor's covered sliding glass door and window without identifying a real target. Some of those bullets actually passed through a shared wall and into a neighboring apartment where a pregnant woman was living with her boyfriend and their five-year-old son. They say that his actions went against his training, department policy, the law around when it's okay to use deadly force. But Hankison's defense attorneys say that he was acting to defend his fellow officers, one of whom had been shot. And and in terms of witnesses, it was actually surprising to see some of Breonna Taylor's family and friends take the stand. We heard from her sister, Janiah Palmer, who described her as her best friend. and, And she told jurors about the lasting impact that it had on her and the family. And I understand that there was another really important witness today. Brett Hankison testified in his own defense. Tell us about it. Yeah, Hankison took the stand around 11.45 this morning, and he testified for a little over two hours. He got choked up at some points talking about the raid, and he said he thought officers were being fired at by someone with an AR-15-style weapon, and he had no choice but to react to protect himself and his fellow officers. Prosecutors really grilled him on the use of force um, and whether he actually saw what he was shooting at. We've already heard from experts the past two weeks who said there was no rifle. Um, The prosecution's witnesses included police officials and forensics experts who basically explained over and over again that officers aren't trained to shoot blindly, that they're supposed to have target identification and isolation. One of the things I think that's been different um, in this trial is, is the strong condemnation that we've heard from other officers who were actually at the scene. The SWAT team commander at the time said he was in utter shock and disbelief um, when he realized the bullet holes in the covered windows and doors were from a police officer. Um, That was uh, pretty major. And in just a sentence or two, any idea when this case is expected to go to the jury? Yeah, Hankison's going to finish testifying on Monday, and we're expecting that to be the last witness. So hopefully early next week we'll have some sort of conclusion to this trial. Roberto Roldan with Louisville Public Media. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on All Things Considered, the MBTA today laid out its plan to repair subway problems and address track issues. 
that are causes for slow zones for the trains. The good news is the end is in sight for some of the T's troubles. The not-so-good news is it won't be until the end of next year before the shutdowns come to an end. In the forecast, gray and damp uh, today. Now for tonight, look for cloudy skies. Temperatures about 40 degrees for a low. And for tomorrow, clouds once again. Temperatures barely topping 50 degrees. 44 degrees in Boston. The time is 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara, serving modern Latin American fare at the Melrose Cafe, and now a new location with table service open in Beverly. Drop-off lunch catering available. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com. Iowa is known as a mostly rural state with a population that is almost entirely white. But there are some pockets that buck this stereotype. One such place is Perry, Iowa, where the Latino community now represents over a third of the population. They're kind of accepting us because there's no other way, I guess. How has the increased anti-immigrant rhetoric of Republicans affected the community and its residents? That's tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Council on American-Islamic Relations says it's received an unprecedented increase in reports of anti-Muslim and anti-Arab bias since the Hamas attack on Israel one month ago. NPR's Jason DeRose has more. The Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, says that between October 7th and November 4th, its national and regional offices received 1,283 requests for help and reports of bias. That's a 216% increase from the same period last year. CARE says the complaints come from a wide swath of Americans, including public school and college students, doctors, and those attending protests. Last week, the Biden administration announced that it's creating a national strategy to counter Islamophobia. Earlier this year, it launched a similar program to counter anti-Semitism. Jason DeRose, NPR News. A wildfire in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia has burned at least 3,700 acres, including parts of the Shenandoah National Park. From member station WMRA, Randy B. Hagee has more. Helicopters from the Virginia National Guard have joined the approximately 150 firefighters from various agencies fighting the blaze. They're primarily working along the western edge of the fire where it's expanded into the park. Byron Hare is a public information officer with the incident management team. We got a good bit on the western edge of the fire kind of buttoned up. With the lower humidity today, we got higher wind expected up on those ridges today, so that may cause a hold up on that. The combination of mountainous terrain, dry conditions, and heavy leaf litter have made this fire volatile and difficult to fight since it was ignited by unknown causes on October 24th. The park has closed several trails and some nearby residents were advised to evacuate. Local authorities have also issued an outdoor burn ban. For NPR News, I'm Randy B. Hagee. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Andover teachers are on strike. Members of the teachers union voted this afternoon to authorize an immediate walkout. There's already no school tomorrow in observance of Veterans Day. The union and school committee are in the midst of contract negotiations. Andover teachers are seeking pay raises, paid family and medical leave, and greater influence over curriculum decisions. The state says its emergency family shelter program is full as of today. 
State data posted this afternoon shows 7,517 families are in the shelter system. The Healy administration says it can only handle 7,500. The wait list will start tomorrow for new families who still need a place to live. The governor's been working with the legislature and asking the Biden administration for money and resources to meet the demand. Vice President Kamala Harris was in Boston today to headline a fundraiser downtown for President Biden's re-election and to meet with a labor group. WBOR Simone Rios was at the Pipefitters Local 537 in Dorchester. Harris's visit to Boston comes as the Biden administration is looking to highlight its support of unions. She talked about National Apprenticeship Week, while President Biden met with United Auto Workers in Illinois. Thank them for the eight-hour workday. Thank them for sick leave, for any paid family leave, for vacation time. (laughs) Brought to you by unions. For all workers, whether or not you're a member of a union or not. Harris later headed downtown to a Democratic fundraiser where pro-Palestinian protesters rallied outside. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. 43 degrees in Boston. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, offering solar subscriptions that allow households to access the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. Thick clouds this evening and tomorrow as well. Overnight tonight should be about 40 degrees. Tomorrow making it to the low 50s, winds picking up. And Veterans Day Saturday should be sunny, close to 50 degrees. Sunday sunny, a little bit cooler. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop ethically sourced. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The first thing you notice when you arrive in Amman, Jordan, as our team did today, is Palestinian flags. They are everywhere, flying from balconies, taped in shop windows, slung around people's necks. Jordan borders Israel and the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Gaza and the war unfolding there is 90 miles away. But people here in Amman say the war is having a huge impact on their daily lives. The people, they stop drinking, they stop eating, uh, they stop shopping. All they do is watch TV, wondering what is going to happen to Gaza. That is 45-year-old Ahmed Shadid. He works in a dress shop in central Amman. Not everyone would speak with us. More than one person refused because we are American, and anger here against America is running high. The first man we tried in Hashem, a hummus cafe, declined for this reason. The second was a 40-year-old man named Amir. He didn't want to give his last name. He's worried about the police and his safety. He told me he is watching events in Gaza with horror, but he does not want the war to end. On the contrary. I'm very hopeful that it will escalate very quickly, but I truly believe that there's something happening with the people here. 
But people are truly thinking about picking up arms and fighting. Just do something. Back to that anger at U.S. government policy. Some Jordanians are boycotting American products to protest American support of Israel. Adil Kilani, who is Palestinian and owns a coffee shop here, has pulled Pepsi from his shelves, replaced it with local Jordanian cola. Have your customers complained? Do they support this? My customers, they are encouraging this, this subject. Across town tonight, we stopped by a pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel protest. More Palestinian flags, posters that appeared to show dead children in Gaza, pro-Hamas slogans. They chant in Arabic. Sometimes it's Free Palestine, sometimes this. An old Palestinian song, take away the soldiers from the borders and the West Bank, they're saying. We pull aside a young woman who asked us to identify her by her nickname, Rond, because she says her job does not allow her to speak to the media. She's 29, Jordanian of Palestinian descent with family in Gaza. I am boycotting too. I'm feeling the feeling of helpless person towards what's happening. So all I can do is boycott, is protest, and do the, the smallest stuff I can do and share on social media, talk to my non-Arab friends to tell them about what's happening. Well, I was curious how what we are hearing here in Jordan lines up with the rest of the region. So we have called NPR's Gina Rav, who is reporting from Beirut, Lebanon, where she is seeing some of the immediate effects of this war's spillover. Hey, Jane. Hi, Mary Louise. Okay, let's start. I want you to start actually in southern Lebanon because there has been shelling between Israel and another group, Hezbollah. What is the situation like now? Hezbollah is the biggest political and military force in Lebanon, and it's backed by Iran. It says there's a real danger of the war widening in reaction to these mounting deaths in Gaza. More than 10,000 people have been killed so far in Gaza. Almost half of those are children. Since the Hamas attacks across the Israeli border killed about 1,400 people last month. So Israel and Hezbollah have been launching rockets and artillery across the border pretty much every day since the war began. But on Sunday, after a Hezbollah attack, which it said was aimed at an army outpost, killed an Israeli civilian, things escalated. Israel launched an airstrike that killed a Lebanese woman and three children in a car. Hezbollah responded for the first time in this conflict with heavier firepower, launching grad rockets in what it said was retaliation for those deaths. This is interesting. So it sounds like the, uh, the war is already having a, a huge effect in Lebanon. It is, particularly when you get down to that border area. We visited a center for displaced families in Tyre City, just 12 miles from the border with Israel, and there are more families arriving there every day. From the seaside that the city is built around, we could actually hear explosions and see smoke rising from the Israeli strikes. In Tyre, we spoke with Mohammed Ali Jaber. He's the chairman of the city's technical school. And he talked to us next to classrooms where students were studying car mechanics, just one floor above displaced families who were living in classrooms. Everyone aims to live a life which is full of peace and happiness and ecstasy and pleasure, but it's with the hands of God. 
He also says, though, that it's in U.S. hands because they're providing arms and money to Israel. And that's a sentiment that's growing across the region. As you pointed out, that boycott of U.S. brands and places like Jordan, that's also happening in Lebanon and in other countries because there really is a widespread belief that if it weren't for the U.S., Israel wouldn't be able to continue its bombing campaign. Touch, if you would, Jane, on on some of those other countries. I want to just skip around the region. What are you picking up on? Well, this war, Mary Louise, has really hardened anti-Israeli sentiment in a lot of Arab countries, including some of those that were moving to normalize ties with Israel. Yemen's Houthis, backed by Iran, said this week they had launched drone attacks against Israel. Yemen, of course, is not one of the ones that was normalizing relations, but it is an interesting development. And U.S. installations in Iraq have also come under increased attack from Iran-backed militias. Iran, of course, is a key part of whether this war escalates. It backs Hamas, which Israel is fighting in Gaza, as well as other powerful militia groups in the region. One other thing I want to ask about, which is this. I have I have not been in Jordan long at all, but I am already struck by how angry people are here at the U.S. I, w- I want you to listen to one thing somebody told me tonight. This is Tamar Shanuk. He was at the protest tonight, and I asked who he blames for what is happening in Gaza. He told me he blames America first, Israel second. So America is the main leader in the world and is the biggest who has the force or who has the power in America, and they give the, all the uh, apologies to Israel to do all of that since 1948. So I want to make sure I understand it's Israeli soldiers, not Americans, who are shooting missiles, who are in Gaza, but you blame America first because America is the bigger, more important power and is the, should yes. be the world leader. Yes, and the, uh, the, the missiles they are using is made in USA. Jane, are you hearing things similar to that in Lebanon or or other parts of the Middle East? Absolutely. I guess I would say first that you're hearing those really visceral reactions in Jordan, though, because so many of its citizens, a majority actually, are Palestinian origin. But definitely there's more anger across the region at the U.S. And what so many Arabs see as double standards regarding the loss of so many civilian lives. It's a kind of anger I haven't seen since the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003 and its disastrous aftermath. And PR's Jane Araf in Beirut. I will say thank you and good night from Amman. Thank you. Good night from Beirut. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you ride the MBTA and you're tired of taking subway trains that move about as fast as you can ride your bike... There's a plan today for how that's going to be fixed, and it's going to take a while. T officials announced today that the slow zones that riders have dealt with this year will be lifted by the end of next year. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez is here with the latest. So it sounds like good news, bad news. What is the plan? Bad news is that there will be more service shutdowns. Good news is is that they will... Um, results in lifting of these slow zones. Right now, there are about 190 slow zones across the T subway system that need track repairs. So the service outages that they're predicting over the next year are going to take about 
188 days spread out over the course of, you know, the next 14 months or so. But uh, the general manager of the T, Phil Eng, says they're going to find ways to work around that. Precisely. While these disruptions happen, they will be planning other service alternatives like shuttle bus services or making commuter rail lines accessible for people that are being impacted by these. Also, they're going to be hosting open houses like as these dates are finalized to get feedback from the communities that are going to be impacted by these shutdowns so they can better plan how to mitigate the inconvenience that these shutdowns are going to cause them. Here's General Manager Phil Eng talking about why this approach is necessary. The track improvement plan is a big, bold initiative, uh, but we've gone too long with years and years of disinvestment, and time is now to give the public back the system that they deserve. The reason why this is kind of like a big deal is that historically maintenance and repair work has been done like overnight or on weekends, um, and it just takes a longer period of time. So since Ang took the reins of the MBTA earlier this year, he has overseen other projects like this where they shut down the you know a portion of the T for two weeks or so, and it has enabled the system to kind of get everything that they need to get done in a shorter period of time, like two weeks versus service disruptions that may last six months because of nights and weekend kind of a pay, uh, repair approach. So instead getting it all done at once, that's that's the plan. That's the plan. He, he's, he says, get in, get out, get it done. Right. So what's wrong with the tracks anyway that led to the shutdowns all over the system? So earlier this year, the state discovered inconsistencies in records on track repairs. So they didn't know what tracks had been fixed. They didn't know what tracks still needed repairs. So what they did was they imposed a system-wide slow zone uh, restrictions across all the subways to kind of reduce the speeds while they evaluated which tracks were in most need of repair. And how slow were we talking about? Normally, the trains can go up to 40 miles an hour. Um, when there's a slow zone in place, it means that it's running like 10 to 20 miles an hour, more or less. So, you know, the train's running slower. It's adding to the commute times. Um, and I've spoken to people who have told me that they've had to pad their travel time by up to an hour as a result of the slow zones that have been put in place. There are some groups, Andrea, that represent transit riders, and these groups are pretty vocal about the T's problems. How are they reacting to the news today? Honestly, the ones we've heard from so far have been reacting really positively. I know that this seems like a long-term, far-away um, resolution, but Stacy Thompson, she's the executive director of the group Livable Streets, was on Radio Boston earlier today, and this was her reaction. This is huge news, and I think it's important because it's what folks who ride the system and advocates like me have been asking for for a long time, which is a plan. So Boston subway system opened 126 years ago. It's the oldest in the country. And the, the track disrepair that we're talking about is far from the only problem. So how do these repairs play into the bigger picture of fixing the T and modernizing it? So um, Eng says the planned service disruptions will allow the T to address track problems, but also other things like signal replacements and power grid repairs and other things like stairs <laughs> and replacing lights. And once these things are fixed, they'll be able to get to a point where they're just maintaining them instead of constantly having to repair them. And then that'll create that framework that'll allow them to modernize and uh, move the T forward. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez, thank you so much. Thanks, Lisa. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Landry and Arcari Rugs and Carpeting. Fall event through mid-November with antique and modern handmade rugs. Boston, Salem, Framingham, and LandryandArcari.com.
This is WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes. A key Democrat in the U.S. Senate says he's not running for re-election. How that hurts the party's hopes to retain control of the Senate coming up. Forecast clouds overnight tonight. Temperatures about 40 degrees. Then for tomorrow, more clouds. Temperatures in the low 50s. Boston's a big music town. Major acts play the big venues like MGM Music Hall or TD Garden. But there's also a lot of local talent and smaller theaters and clubs with live music every night. Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you want to catch live music around Boston, you've got your pick of genres. There's a thriving hip-hop scene with local artists like Sean Wire. Jazz at places like Wally's, Scullers, or the Beehive. A lively Irish folk scene in pubs across the city. Not to mention reggae and the underground punk scene. Check out our guide to arts and culture in Boston for where to find your vibe in the city. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. The first time an American orchestra visited China, Western classical music was banned. It was 1973, and the Philadelphia Orchestra, led by conductor Eugene Ormandy, was the first to perform in the People's Republic. It was a move made possible by President Richard Nixon's historic visit the year prior to thaw U.S.-China relations. This week, the orchestra returns to mark the 50th anniversary of that 10-day tour and perhaps to help restore relations that have frayed since then. One musician will also be returning, violinist David Booth. We spoke to him via Zoom from his Beijing hotel, and he recounted that first visit and how different that capital city was 50 years ago. When we landed in Beijing, for one thing, the airport was really quite, quite small, and it was pretty much surrounded by fields. We saw farmers working in the fields with a wooden cart. It had wooden wheels, and it was pulled by water buffaloes. That's one of the the things that most struck me. And the other thing that I remember is that we we actually didn't see very many cars, but we saw literally hundreds of thousands of bicycles, seas of bicycles. And so that is one of the, the visual memories that remains very vivid for me today. What made you want to return to China to be a part of this anniversary tour again, a half century later? Well, for one thing, it's, it's part of my job. And then uh, it was really exciting coming back. I mean, just the fact, I mean, I never dreamed that I'd be here this long. I'm glad that, you know, I've, I've lasted physically and all of this to be able to still continue to work. And it's a, a, a great experience. And uh, it's very nostalgic because over the, the years, I've developed a lot of relationships and keep in touch with a lot of of people that I've met through these many Chinese visits. The uh, second visit to China happened about 20 years later, and it was a, a completely different country. You could not believe how quickly the, the high development took place. It went from the old world China, and then in 1992, suddenly, I mean, it had uh, developed into a huge modern, modern country. 
I understand that on that initial 1973 trip, there was endless haggling on the details, including the music. Do you remember that? Yes, very well. One of the, the big issues was programming, and we were planning to play Beethoven Fifth Symphony. The person who was really in charge at that time was Mrs. Mao, and she did not like the Beethoven Fifth Symphony. She wanted the Sixth Symphony, which is called the Pastoral Symphony. And it's a very programmatic music, and there are different titles for each of the movements. And she thought that that, first of all, represented some of the struggle with the people, and then also the beautiful bits of nature that were described with the music. And Ormandy, that was his least favorite Beethoven symphony. I think the reason why is because it ended softly. He always wanted the big symphonic pieces he most liked were the ones that ended with a huge, huge ending. And then of course it caused the, the audience to burst out in, in very excited applause. It almost turned into a scandal. He was very adamant that he didn't want to conduct it. And I can remember I was in a room, I happened to be in a room next to him and I overheard him started screaming. He could sometimes be a very volatile person. He said, I will not conduct that symphony. And there was uh, a lot of diplomatic back and forth. One of them was a person who did a lot of the work getting us here, Nicholas Platt. And he talked to Ormandy and calmed him down and actually got Ormandy to, to agree to conduct the work. And then it turned out, you know, we, we weren't planning to play that piece, so the library had not brought music. So we had to get music and it turned out that there were no complete sets of the music. We had to combine two sets of music from two different orchestras here in China to be able to do the piece. But we did and it was a big success and everybody was happy ever after. I mean, David, that is an incredible story. This time around, will you all be performing Beethoven's Sixth Symphony and Fifth Symphony? No. <laughs> Actually, this time around, it's a smaller group. I'm not traveling now with the full orchestra. And uh, they wanted me to come. They really urged me to. They sent me actually a couple of telegrams. And uh, I'll never forget, at the end, there was a sentence that said, you know how the Chinese revere their elders. So I think I want to get a T-shirt that says revered elder. <laughs> what then is on your playlist for these performances? Well, there's a couple of interesting pieces. One is a movement from a very wonderful, beautiful piece of Johannes Brahms, his clarinet quintet. And then we have a couple of string quartets, a couple of trios. There's an interesting Francais trio that uses English horn and uh, beautiful movement from Mendelssohn piano trio in D minor.
So we have a lot of good music, I think, for these concerts. And then there's also a couple of Chinese pieces that we will be playing. David, what are you most looking forward to during this trip and with these performances? The Chinese audiences are just so receptive. They just so love music. And you can see from their reactions and their facial expressions that it really deeply touches them, goes to their hearts. And this one concert that we're playing for Children's Hospital, I mean, to, to bring music to anybody suffering, particularly young people, I think music is uh, one of the most restorative of the arts, what it can do for your psyche and what it can do for the serenity of your spirit, I think helps really greatly people that are suffering. I mean, it's not lost on any of us that this trip is coming at a tense time in U.S.-China relations. David, do you think that classical music has something to offer all of us today when it comes to easing those tensions? Oh, absolutely. We've talked a lot about this. The one thing is that music transcends any kind of politics. I think it transcends any sense of violence in our lives. It can transcend unhappiness. It can bring soothing spirit to any kind of situation like that. I think it's more and more important that music does that than absolutely all portions of the people. That was violinist David Booth of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals, this year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Lots of clouds around this evening. Overnight tonight, falling to about 40 degrees overnight. Tomorrow should see more clouds. Temperatures in the low 50s with winds picking up during the day. Join us Monday, December 4th at City Space for a conversation with Chef Clancy Miller about her new cookbook. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. For the perfect spot to host your next event, Discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Booking now for holiday celebrations and winter events, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin says he won't run for re-election. Democrats are counting on him to help them retain control of the U.S. Senate. Coming up, what's next for Democrats in the upper chamber? As for Senate Republicans, they're getting fed up with their colleague from Alabama, Tommy Tuberville's blockade of military appointments. That's coming up on All Things Considered. 
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Arizona has limited where new housing can be built to protect water supplies, but builders are taking advantage of a big loophole. Yes, there is still opportunity for growth, but there needs to be a understanding of the limits. The conflict between housing demand and climate change coming up. And this evening on Marketplace, Albuquerque has just made its pandemic-era free bus service permanent to boost ridership and increase accessibility. How many of these free ridership programs have survived? That's coming up. It's not. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden celebrated with members of the United Auto Workers Union in Illinois today. NPR's Claudio Grisales reports a mix of supporters and protesters showed up outside the event. Biden gave the remarks to an excited crowd of United Auto Worker Union members in the Illinois community of Belvedere, northwest of Chicago. His remarks were disrupted early on by a protester in the crowd calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza war. For a long time. Biden was celebrating UAW's recent win with Detroit automakers and said there's still more for unions to accomplish in the future. Before Biden left Washington, he said he supported new efforts for the UAW to unionize at Tesla and Toyota. Biden also slammed former President Donald Trump, his likely opponent in next year's presidential election, for visiting a non-union plant during the strike. Claudia Rizales, NPR News, Belvedere. The Justice Department is calling on a federal appeals court to uphold the conviction of former Trump political advisor Steve Bannon. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports Bannon was found guilty of two counts of contempt of Congress. Prosecutors say Steve Bannon blew off subpoenas from the congressional panel investigating the January 6th riot. Bannon has been sentenced to four months in prison, but the judge paused his punishment so Bannon could appeal. Bannon's attorney told the D.C. Circuit Appeals Court that he relied on legal advice, and he didn't act willfully to flout the House Select Committee. He said he operated on the idea former President Trump asserted executive privilege, but there's no evidence Trump actually took that step in the case. Bannon had not served in the White House for years at the time of the siege on the Capitol, casting doubt on the idea he was covered by that privilege. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. The actors' strike ended at midnight after the union SAG after made a deal with major studios. NPR's Mandalay Del Barco reports union members are now free to act and promote their work. Actor Billy Porter told NPR that during the strike he had to put the James Baldwin biopic he wrote and was to star in on hold. Now that the strike is over, he's excited to go back to work on it and other projects. It's about time and my bank account's going to be happy too. She's going to be happy, honey. My retirement account, all my accounts are going to be happy when I get back to work. Members of SAG-AFTRA still have to vote to ratify the new three-year contract. It's unclear when movie and TV productions will gear back up, but many in Hollywood say they can't wait. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Los Angeles. Stocks closed lower today. The Dow fell 220 points to end the session at 33,891. The Nasdaq was down 128 points. The S&P 500 fell 35 points. This is NPR. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, the Massachusetts family shelter system hit its capacity limit. Tomorrow, the state will begin to turn families away and put them on a wait list. State officials say the families will get shelter when a unit becomes vacant. As WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel reports, this is the first time in the system's 40-year history that all units have been filled. 
The family shelter population has more than doubled over the past year, including many new arrivals from Haiti. Homeless advocates warn that making families wait for shelter will leave them without safe options. There is a waiting list, but there is no waiting place. Reverend Diefior Florissen is a leader in the Haitian community. I'm very worried, very concerned, very worried about those families. He would like to see military bases or other overflow sites for waitlisted families. State officials say families fleeing domestic violence and those with health and safety risks will be prioritized on the waitlist. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriela Emanuel. There's been a significant jump in the number of people signing up for state-backed health insurance. Open enrollment began last Wednesday. The head of the Massachusetts Health Connector said since then, more than 50,000 people have been enrolled. That's 25 percent more than than during the same period last year. It follows a years-long effort to redetermine whether nearly 2.5 million MassHealth members are still eligible. Councillor Ruthie Lejeune said that she has secured enough support to be elected the next president of the Boston City Council. She was the top vote-getter across the city in Tuesday's election. She also took over the leadership of the council's contentious redistricting process earlier this year. Current council president Ed Flynn did not immediately return a request for comment. Councillors will vote on a new president when they start their new term next year. The Sumner Tunnel in Boston will be closed this long veterans' holiday weekend. Starting at 11 o'clock Friday night, cars will not be able to use the tunnel that brings traffic from East Boston into the government center area. Sumner will reopen Monday morning at 5. There will be planned closures through the wintertime to allow for work on the major construction project in the aging tunnel. 42 degrees in the Boston area, clouds overnight tonight, temperatures about 40. And for tomorrow, could make it to the low 40s, high winds tomorrow, and more clouds. It's 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Juana Summers in Washington. West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin announced today that he will not seek another term. I believe in my heart of hearts that I have accomplished what I set out to do for West Virginia. I've made one of the toughest decisions of my life and decided that I will not be running for re-election to the United States Senate. Manchin, a Democrat, has represented the increasingly red state since 2010. Though his centrist politics and tendency to buck his party on major legislation made him a thorn in the side of Democrats, losing him in that seat is a major blow to their efforts to retain control of the chamber in next year's elections. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh joins us now. Hey there. Hey, Wada. So, Deirdre, what did Manchin have to say about why he does not want to run again next November for that Senate seat? He said he accomplished what he set out to do for his home state of West Virginia. Manchin's 76 years old. He served as governor of the state before he was elected to the Senate in 2010. As you noted, he's been part of a number of bipartisan deals, even though he did uh, sort of become the ire of the progressive left when he pushed back on President Biden's agenda. But he was critical to his climate and health care bill. The political reality for Manchin was that he was already facing long odds in a solidly red state to win as a Democrat on the ballot with President Joe Biden uh, on the ballot next year. And Biden is deeply unpopular in West Virginia. Manchin spent the last few months distancing himself from Biden. He even talked about repealing parts of the climate bill he actually co-authored. 
Let's talk about this in terms of control of the Senate. As we mentioned, this is a pretty big blow to Senate Democrats' efforts to retain control. How how bad are things? I mean, it just got a whole lot harder for Democrats. They were already facing an uphill battle with a map in 2024 with 23 Democratic seats uh, on the map. And with such a narrow Senate majority, they can't really afford to lose anywhere. They're already defending seats in red states like Ohio with Sherrod Brown running for re-election and Montana with Senator Tester running for re-election. In West Virginia, Joe Manchin really was the one Democrats Democrats thought could keep his seat competitive. So it looks more likely Republicans will pick it up. The Senate GOP campaign chief Steve Daines quickly put out a statement after Manchin's announcement saying, quote, we like our odds in West Virginia. Okay, setting aside Senate control for a second here, what about Manchin himself? Any insight on what his future might hold? That's still a really big question. Manchin has been coy about his political future for months. He's been suggesting he might run as an independent for his seat. He made a reference to his plans to continue to stay in politics in his announcement today. But what I will be doing is traveling the country and speaking out to see if there is an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. Manchin's already traveled to a key primary state, New Hampshire. He was at an effort, uh, an event sponsored by a group called No Labels that's trying to get on the ballot in states to challenge both political parties in next year's election. Uh, Manchin sort of danced around whether he would run for president at that event in New Hampshire. Let's take a listen to what he said. We're here to make sure that the American people have an option. And the option is, can you move the political parties off their respective sides. They've gone too far right and too far left. Manson's argument is the current two parties can't be moved until they are actually threatened. Okay. So if, say, he were to run, do you have a sense of what a third party bid with a centrist like Joe Manchin, what would that look like? It's really unclear. His brand has always been arguing that there's a lot more to be accomplished in the political middle, which is hard to understand at a time where there's such division on both sides. Manchin made this point again in his announcement video today. These are not Republican or Democratic challenges. These are American challenges. They affect every one of us, and we need to face them together. But as Juana, as you know, it's such a divided country, it's really unclear whether there's any appetite for any moderate national candidate arguing about getting things done in the middle. So and Manchin's own party has moved significantly since the left. So he's really alienated many of the people he would need to vote for him if he did decide to make any sort of third party bid. NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's stay with developments in the Senate. One man there continues to hold up hundreds of military appointments. That Senator Tommy Tuberville, the Alabama Republican, has been blocking almost all nominations since February in protest over a Pentagon abortion policy. His colleagues are fed up, and they're starting to get creative about solutions. Here's NPR's Lauren Hodges. If you can't move him, it's time to find a way around him. That seems to be the thinking among many of Senator Tuberville's colleagues. Senate Rules Committee Chair Amy Klobuchar told NPR, Enough is enough. Senator Tuberville had not listened to those that are running our military. And he's not listened to his own Republican colleagues. Among those is Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska, who says he takes this personally as a former Marine. Sullivan told Fox News this week that Tuberville isn't just undermining military readiness, but also morale. If we start driving our best flag officers 
out of the military, this is going to be viewed as a national security suicide mission. There is generally resistance in the Senate to changing any rules. But Klobuchar says the vocal irritation from Republicans makes her confident they can pass a new temporary resolution, which is scheduled for a committee vote next week. In their current state, Senate rules allow Tuberville to hold up nominations all by himself. But the proposed change, which would need 60 votes to adopt, would work like this. Instead of voting on each military appointment one by one, most of them could pass through at once as a group. And it would only need a simple majority, like all other nominations. Klobuchar says Tuberville has blocked so many positions, more than 370 of them, the Senate doesn't have time to start from the beginning, even if someone got him to back down. There's a spending bill deadline to consider. Because if we voted on them individually, we would literally be going through the year and the government would shut down. Klobuchar says once the Tuberville issue is handled, she'd love to see a permanent rule change, making sure no one person has the power to do something like this again. Lauren Hodges, NPR News, The Capitol. Where should new housing be built as the climate gets hotter? That is a question Arizona has been grappling with. A two-decade drought is straining water supplies there, and there is a big demand for housing. The state has one of the strongest laws in the country to limit growth where water is scarce. But as Lauren Summer reports from NPR's Climate Desk, there's a loophole. If you want to build housing in Pinal County, Arizona, south of Phoenix, there's one topic that always comes up in public meetings. I think we all get these questions, but is there water for it? Lack of water assurances should be warning enough. We need to get the water. Yes, we need new sources of water. The area is a desert, after all, and a hotter climate is straining the water supply like never before. It's hard. Yeah. Water is hard. Craig McFarland is mayor of Casa Grande, a city in Pinal County. It's the fastest growing county in Arizona. New jobs are opening up nearby at electric car and battery manufacturing plants. As the industry is really rushing into the community, we have a huge need for housing. But where to put the housing? That's the issue. McFarland unrolls a map of the city, which looks like a patchwork quilt. Some land is white and some is blue. The blue parcels mean there's water. So these are all areas that single-family homes can be built in. But the white parcels are out of luck. To build a subdivision here, builders have to show the project has a water supply for 100 years. It's part of a consumer protection law that says that in Arizona, if you're a consumer, we're going to guarantee you have 100 years' worth of water. Four years ago, state water regulars found the demand had grown so much, water is going to run short. Most of it is pumped from underground aquifers. So they stopped issuing water guarantees for new subdivisions, which is what they need to get built. But McFarland isn't discouraged. Casagrande will continue to grow. It's just we have to manage it. We have to be frugal with the water we have. And because building in town hasn't actually stopped. At a new development, construction workers are putting siding on single-story homes. It'll be more than 300 units. This is a great product to rent. Greg Hancock is president of Hancock Builders. He's been building homes in Arizona for more than four decades. Even with the water situation, Hancock didn't have to worry about a water supply for this project. We don't need a sure water supply because it's one lot. Although it is 331 units, it's one lot. These homes will be rented, not sold, to homeowners. And Arizona's water rules only apply to subdivisions where the land is broken up to build homes for sale. As a result, these build-to-rent projects have been booming in Arizona. We have finished 3,000. We have 3,000 more in the construction and 5,000 more in pre-development. 
and concerns are growing that that unaccounted growth could strain the water supply even more. It's really a pivotal moment for Arizona. Kathleen Ferris is a senior research fellow at the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. She helped write Arizona's groundwater rules four decades ago. Back then, building big rental projects wasn't really a thing. But now, she says all of the state's water use needs to be examined. Arizona's other major water source, the Colorado River, is also shrinking as temperatures rise. Climate change and aridification have come on so much faster than most people thought. Earlier this year, state legislators tried to pass several bills that would have closed the loophole, requiring build-to-rent projects to have a water supply. Different interest groups, the realtors, the home builders, the Department of Water Resources, they all had different ways they wanted to structure the bills, and it just never came together. Policymakers may try again, and the governor has set up a task force on the issue. Ferris says the strength of Arizona's water law is that it links building decisions with water decisions. No other Western state requires cities to look 100 years into the future. Yes, there is still opportunity for growth, but there needs to be a understanding of the limits. That means cities are having to look at solutions, like water recycling, to boost their supplies in order to keep growing. The lesson of climate change, Ferris says, is that you always have to be planning ahead. Lauren Summer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A stock headed downward today. The Dow lost more than six-tenths of a percent. The Dow snapped, uh, S&P that is, snapped an eight-day winning streak. It sank eight-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq dropped nearly a full percent. An investing app must pay a half million dollars in fines levied by the Massachusetts Secretary of State's office. The state says the company Webull did not adequately handle customer complaints or compliance issues. The Secretary of State's office says since its launch in 2018, the company has at times employed just one person dedicated to compliance issues. Weeble oversees some 6 million investor accounts through its app and more than 100,000 here in Massachusetts. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Stanhope Framers. Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. The Massachusetts economy grew four times more than expected in the third quarter of the year. Economic experts at the UMass Donahue Institute expected the state's gross domestic product to rise less than 1% between July and September. It grew nearly 4%. The Institute's Mark Melnick says the numbers set a record for the state. The unemployment rate is at a historic low at 2.6%. And the unemployed population plus those folks who are part-time but would like to work full-time is also approaching a historic low. 
Melnick expects the state's economy to cool this quarter and early next year because of lower household spending and a tight labor market. And there's been a significant jump in the number of people signing up for state-backed health insurance. Open enrollment began last Wednesday. The head of the Massachusetts Health Connector says since then, more than 50,000 people have enrolled. That's 25 percent more than during the same period last year. It follows a year-long effort to redetermine whether nearly 2.5 million MassHealth members are still eligible. It's 620. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Fresh City Kitchen, now accepting orders and helping you plan for your holiday catering needs. Learn more at freshcitykitchen.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. As word spread yesterday that the strike by Hollywood actors would end after 118 days, performers expressed relief and celebration across social media and in public. Here's actor Jeremy Allen White finding out that the strike ended while doing a red carpet interview with Access Hollywood for his new film, The Iron Claw. Very, very happy the strike is over. Just now. It's crazy. Here we are. I'm ready. The new deal negotiated by the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers and SAG-AFTRA, the union representing Hollywood actors, stunt performers, voiceover actors, and dancers, must still be ratified by members of the union. And we should note that NPR News staffers are also members of SAG-AFTRA, but we broadcast journalists are under a different contract, and we were not part of the strike. Here to answer questions around what is hopefully a new deal is Eric Daggins, NPR's TV critic and media analyst. Hey there. Hi. So, Eric, what can you tell us about this new agreement? Does Hollywood think it was worth this long work stoppage? Well, the leadership of the Actors Union and members of the negotiating committee seem really pleased with what they worked out. And there's a general sense that the union succeeded by holding out until it could get a deal addressing many of the concerns of its members. The union has said the new contract is valued at more than a billion dollars. The Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, which represented Hollywood Studios, has said it provided the largest increase in minimum wages for actors in 40 years along with new payments for streaming and rules about how they use artificial intelligence. I think we're going to learn more about this once the sag after board reviews it, reportedly tomorrow, and then union members still need to ratify it. So when will fans start to see this new deal in action? Well, the first thing you're going to see is a lot of your favorite celebrities all over media, talk shows especially, promoting projects that are out now or coming out now, which they couldn't do while on strike. Actors can go back to film festivals like Sundance, Oscars and the Emmys and award shows will firm up their plans. All of that is going to kick in right away. One of the big questions I have, I mean, it's about the work itself. How will these film studios, TV, streaming, how are they going to get things going again after all this time? Well, it's not totally clear yet, but there's a hope that since the Writers Guild of America strike ended in late September after 148 days, they've had time to plan how they're going to rev up production. There's also hope that the broadcast TV series can have a shortened series of maybe 13 episodes of new content uh, for popular shows this year. Uh, Movies and streaming shows will take a little longer to get going, but I wonder if the public's even going to notice because the flood of new shows didn't slow that much during the strikes. Hopefully, we'll see the quality of shows go up a bit as old favorites come back. Yeah. I mean, last thing, is there any hidden fallout to these strikes that perhaps we're only going to start to understand as the dust settles and people are getting back to work? 
Well, I worry about the brain drain. I mean, these strikes didn't just stop actors and writers from working. A lot of people had to stop working, and some of them probably couldn't afford to not get paychecks for as long as these strikes lasted. What TV shows got canceled, and how will that affect the entertainment landscape? And it seems like creators and performers from marginalized groups were just starting to get a lot of projects, significant footholds in the industry. Are we going to still see that level of diversity when everything starts up again? Lots to look for. NPR's Eric Deggins. Thank you. Thank you. House Republicans seemed to be having a moment of togetherness last month after they overcame weeks of party infighting and finally elected a speaker. But that solidarity quickly faded as one wing of congressional Republicans broke out into public arguments with each other. The animosity threatens to prevent House Speaker Mike Johnson from delivering on his promise to unite them and get Congress back to work. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales has more. A little more than two weeks ago, House Republicans were electrified, chanting the name of Louisiana Congressman Mike Johnson to lead them as speaker. Johnson said it marked a new chapter. This conference that you see, this House Republican majority is united. But it only took a couple of days to return to the infighting that has consumed this GOP conference. Let me just tell you, if Matt Gaetz's lips are moving, it's only lies that's coming out of it. There might not be another member of Congress who lives a lie every day more than Jason Smith. She can play the game once or whatever. I mean, He attacked me first, so I called him Colonel Sanders. That's House Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith, Florida Congressman Matt Gates, Texas Congressman Chip Roy, and Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. After Smith called Gates a liar on a local Missouri radio show, Gates fired back from his podcast. More recently, Greene attacked Roy and other Republicans on social media who voted against one of her legislative resolutions. Green argues the intraparty fights are the nature of the congressional beast. Politics is definitely a place where we argue ideas and ways to accomplish things, and uh, it's definitely on display all the time here. But a lot of these arguments are not about ideas or policies. They're very personal. In fact, they've gotten in the way of Republicans' ability to unify on big things like avoiding a government shutdown next week, not to mention more controversial things like aid for Israel and Ukraine. Arkansas Republican Steve Womack says this isn't the olden days when members of Congress could have heated fights during the day, followed by joint dinners that night. You know, I long for those days. That's the way it was designed and that's the way it ought to function. But sadly today, uh, there are too many personalities involved and that's regretful. It gets in the way of us getting our work done and our work is pretty important. And Womack knows what it's like to get personal. His family was targeted recently after Womack joked on social media about a failed House floor vote to expel New York Congressman George Santos. Santos, who is facing a long list of criminal probes, attacked Womack's son, who has faced a struggle with drug addiction. You know, those are, you know, childish acts, really, when you, when you resort to going on social media and, uh, and uh, you know, crossing red lines for a lot of members, you know, involving their families. Santos later apologized, telling NPR it was the right thing to do, but he declined to comment further. Republicans say a number of factors are fueling the clashes, including the recent speaker fight. 
Here's Missouri freshman Mark Alford. I think the three weeks of not having a rudder on our ship made everyone realize we need to look within ourselves, find what we need to improve upon and how we can help to move forward as a conference. Many members said the way to do that is to start to forgive. Take Ways and Means Chairman Jason Smith. He blamed Gates for much of the chaos last month in an interview on Missouri's local Mark Cox show. Gates returned fire on his own podcast with a vague allegation that Smith is living a lie. Smith later said he was capable of forgiveness. Gates says a lot of things. A lot of members says a lot of things. People's personalities get upset. I forgive people. Many Republicans agreed that the best way to move forward is to pass legislation together. Chip Roy of Texas says he's hopeful Johnson can help set that new tone. It's like a fresh start, right? There's not, I, I, don't, I don't mean this pejoratively, but he doesn't come with baggage. The ongoing skirmishes will require a lot of forgiveness to move the conference forward, but it's not clear it can go far enough to repair the lingering damage from recent weeks. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, The Capitol. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Sumner Tunnel in Boston is going to be closed this long veterans holiday weekend. It's usually kept open on the holidays, but starting at 11 o'clock tomorrow night, vehicles will not be allowed to use the tunnel that brings traffic from East Boston to Government Center. The Sumner will reopen Monday morning at 5. There will be planned closures of the Sumner Tunnel through the winter to allow for major reconstruction work on the aging tunnel. In the forecast, cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures just about 40 degrees for a low, and then tomorrow, more clouds, temperatures barely topping 50 degrees. 42 now in the Boston area under cloudy skies. The time is 6.30. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.